Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6, very end. John chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe. Sorry, those were who did not believe and those who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go his way as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray again. Father, we do ask that you would give life and light to your word life and light to our minds and our hearts, that we may hear and understand, that we might believe and be transformed. Keep your promise to us in Ezekiel 36, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The human mind is a captivating thing, particularly the human memory. This has been fun for me to think about as you know, entering into my doctorate. I can't remember anything these days. Uh, I thought, you know, being young, that memory is functionally kind of limitless. If you work hard enough, you can fit everything in there, and that's just not how it works. You know, you shove one thing in one side, and something gets pushed out the other, and you forget things, sometimes important things, sometimes very important things. I find it interesting, too, the way that our minds remember things and remember things oftentimes incorrectly and oftentimes kind of on purpose incorrectly. Uh, Nikki and I found that after we were first married, there were a number of times where I tried to tell her stories that I distinctly remember her being a part of that happened before we met. How does that work? I remember her being there. We hadn't met yet. Like six years before we met. Go figure. Okay. I think one of the things that I find to be the most intriguing, though, about how our minds work is the way in which our memory, oftentimes we kind of sanitize the world. Where in our minds and how we remember things, we remember them cleaner and nicer and more pleasant and more fun than they actually were a lot of times. I mean, those are maybe a little older. You remember that we should have another baby. (laughs) You obviously don't remember what the first one was like. Obviously you don't. No one in their right mind says that. We should have another baby. 
It's amazing the different things that we can kind of clean and scrub and and make this kind of romantic, idealized portrait without the difficulty, without the trouble. In fact, actually, uh, we have a whole generation, the snowflake generation right now, that's having a tough time processing the darkness and the difficulty of the world because it's been presented to them from the very beginning as having been sanitized. And when they're confronted with the darkness and the brokenness, they don't know what to do with it because we've protected them for too long. We oftentimes do the same kind of thing with the Bible, where when we come to passages or come to people, we've sanitized them to remove the difficulties or the bad things or the the dark things. I love Gideon and the final synopsis of his life, and he led all of Israel to prostitute themselves before the Lord. And yet we like, yay, hero. It's not how I want my legacy to be. It's not what I want on my tombstone. Let all of his people to prostitute themselves before the Lord. We do this, I would say, most terribly, though, with the Lord Jesus, where we remember him just tragically incorrectly. And I love this because in my kind of world, I get to see this where you have all these books that are like, preach like Jesus preached. Have you read how he preached? And it's all about how to use parables and stories. He tells us why he uses parables. So that they won't understand. Like if you're going to honestly read the text, you have to understand. If you preach like Jesus, it's preaching so that the people don't understand you. I really don't think that maybe is kind of an ideal situation. Evangelize like Jesus. You should go and give all your stuff to the poor. Bye. In this case, church plant like Jesus. Where in just a few short sentences, he takes a crowd of eh, 10, 15,000 people and reduces them to just a dozen or so. He successfully runs off an entire stadium full of people. And yet we always view him as this placid, immaculately dressed, unflappable, stoic, happy man. And in reality... He makes everybody uncomfortable everywhere he goes. Because everywhere he goes, the good people try to be friends with him, but they realize they're confronted with their lack of goodness, and the bad people love him, and the prostitutes wash his feet, and everybody's awkward everywhere that Jesus goes. This part here presents a particular Challenge Again, as he reduces the crowd, we see it go from this large number to just a few. And realistically, because John here is contrasting kind of two things for us. He's contrasting a faith in our own image with a biblical faith. And he's contrasting them really kind of by the paragraph, by the party. You see, Jesus has been teaching the crowd here after having fed them. He's teaching them that he is the bread of life. And in doing so, he's presented a number of truths that they are still having to wrestle through. One, he's presented that he is from heaven itself. So when they see him, they're they're viewing somebody that has witnessed the glories divine. And that's hard for them because you know what he looks like? He looks like a poor, homeless carpenter. Remember those things. Not immaculately dressed. Not particularly handsome. Honestly, not particularly well-groomed. 
Again, that homeless thing kind of gets in the way. He has scars. I've never met a carpenter that didn't. Hasn't received all of the formal and fancy education. And yet he's teaching them things that they are wrestling with. And he says, look, I'm just telling you what I've witnessed with my own eyes. And that's hard for them to process. This guy, this Jesus, he says he's from heaven. And then says not only is he from heaven, but that he is the bread from heaven. Which, again, you remind two things. It means that you are to consume him, uh, to apprehend, to get him, and to remain in him, to be made strong by him, to be nourished by him. So not only is he from heaven, but he is the way to be filled with heaven. And further yet, actually, he's gone not just to say that he is a way to be filled from heaven, but he is the way to be filled from heaven. And this would be hard. For anyone to hear, certainly hard for the Jews, as they think they are good people. They think they've figured the world out. They understand the Old Testament. They think they're the good guys in the story. And honestly, remember when you read the Gospels, the Pharisees and the Jews are the ones that we would go, yay, you're the good ones in the story. Yet here in this passage, they're going to present the foil of what it looks like to try to have faith in your own image, have faith of your own making, to have faith of your own kind. Jesus finishes teaching near Capernaum. The giant crowd is there. When many of his disciples, and that word can mean kind of followers, it can mean anything from the twelve. To the masses here, it obviously is going to mean the masses. When the masses heard this, those that had listened to his teaching over the last several days or whatever, they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And it's interesting. It's not a hard saying for the reason that we oftentimes would say it's a hard saying. We get to John chapter 6 and we say, it's a hard saying because I don't understand it. That's not why they say it's a hard saying. They say it's a hard saying because they understand that Jesus has just claimed divinity. He's claimed to be from heaven. They understand that he is claiming to be the way to be fed from heaven. And he's claiming to be the only way to be fed from heaven. It's the equivalent of going to a college and taking a comparative religions class and say, Oh, by the way, Jesus is the one way to heaven. And they would say, well, that's a hard saying. Well, no kidding. Because if, if he's right, everyone else is wrong. I mean, that means my really nice neighbor, I mean, they're really nice. It means that they're wrong and they're headed to hell. I mean, that's a hard saying. And the Jews recognize this. They say, if, if Jesus is right, it means everyone else is wrong. And that is emotionally a difficult thing to come to terms with. It means my loved ones that don't know Jesus are in trouble. It means my neighbors that don't know Jesus are in trouble. It means that my really good and moral friends that don't think they need Jesus are in trouble.
And Jesus, verse 61, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, exposes them. He exposes them and exposes really kind of in essence three trajectories that are common for those that attempt to make a faith of their own making. First, as the disciples are grumbling, he exposes them with the first question, do you take offense at this? Do you find the message offensive? Or are you going to try to soften it? To smooth the edges? To blunt the knife? To make it just a little more palatable? Do you find it offensive? Because you know the beautiful thing is... The Bible does find it offensive. It explicitly says the message of the Bible is offensive. It's offensive to sinners everywhere. He's called the stone of offense. He's called a stumbling block upon which men fall. He knows it's offensive, but knows the natural human propensity is to say this biblical message, this one of Jesus being the only way, this message of me needing to feed on Christ is at its core horrible to me. Because it means I'm not the boss. It means I can't exist in my own strength. It means I need a Savior. And it means that the only way of salvation happens on His terms and not on mine. Do you find this offensive or are you trying to soften the edge? I find that we do this so often, even in terms of when we're evangelizing where sometimes we feel like we're almost kind of embarrassed of biblical truth and our evangelism is just this really weak, I mean, blah, kind of weak presentation of, well, I mean, God loves you and, yes, I share my faith. Well, didn't define which God, didn't define what loves you means, didn't define why that's even an important thing at all. You just said something that was, I mean, it's true, but not explained. I read a book for my doctorate yesterday. I was working on it, and it's interesting. It's a preaching book. And the first 50 pages of the book are basically an explanation of why the man is embarrassed about preaching. But we still need to figure out a way to do it. Ah, gag. The Bible says to do it. I have to do it, whether it's cool or not. Whether it's offensive or not. Whether it's something I enjoy or not. It's what we do because God has commanded. It's not up for me to control the narrative. It's not up to me to control the rules. It's not up to me to decide how I want Christianity to look. Is it offensive? Absolutely it is. And that's the way it's designed to be because God made it so. Because if it's not offensive to me, it means I get to bring all of my old self, my old ways, my old sins with me, and they fit right in. 
I don't know about you, but a heaven where I can bring all of my struggles with me doesn't really sound like heaven. Here, you get to spend eternity still broken and destroyed by the things that have been bothering you all your life. Now you have them for eternity. Thank you. I'll pass on that. Do you take offense at this? Or are you trying to water it down? 62 is much sharper. Then, let's play what if. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The way this is phrased in the original has a presumed answer. Doesn't translate into the English quite as well in this regard, but the presumed answer is... Even if you saw me ascending to where I came from before, even then you still wouldn't put your money where your mouth is. Even then you still wouldn't believe. Even then you wouldn't make a commitment. He's exposing them as they're trying to, again, soften his message, to try to sanitize what he's saying, to blunt the edge, to make it not quite so difficult, and he exposes their hearts. Even if you were to see the Son of Man going to glory, even then you wouldn't believe. Even then, if you had scientific proof, you still would not commit to King Jesus. Again, exposing what self-made religion looks like. It, it looks like where Jesus' words are never quite enough. I still need the final say. It looks like, well, I have to evaluate what he said, if it's true or not. It looks like I am the one in charge. And his illustration is unbelievably graphic. Look, what happened if you watched the ascension? What would happen if right here in front of the 10,000 people or whatever, the heavens opened, the Shekinah glory cloud of God came down and basically absorbed Jesus and pulled him up to glory bodily into heaven? What would happen? And even that wouldn't be enough. And he takes it one step further and explains the theology, the why behind this. Because ultimately it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no veil. The flesh is of no veil. At the end of the day, rubber hit the road. The reality of the matter is this. You aren't even good enough to save yourself. You're not good enough to manufacture faith. You're not good enough, powerful, strong enough, mighty enough to contribute to the equation but there's a contrast whereas we are broken whereas we are weak we are weak whereas we are needy the words that Jesus has spoken to us are spirit and life spirit and life Jesus presents the contrast a contrast of a faith that's built around me A faith that's built around what I accept, what I believe, what I hold, what I find to be the case. What I, what I, what I, what I. Versus a faith 
what He has said, what He has done, what He has accomplished. And He addresses this reality directly in 64. There are some of you who do not believe. (laughs) Yes, He knows that. Because He was there at the beginning when the covenant of redemption amongst the Godhead, they Father, Son, and Spirit chose who would believe. He knew from the very beginning who were His and who were not. He knew from the very beginning who would believe and who would betray. He knew from the very beginning who His people are. It's interesting how He kind of unmakes this argument, doesn't He? This argument that's so filled with self that wants me to be in the driver's seat that wants me to be in control. Even verse 65, finishing it off. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You are not the boss of even yourself. We are so big in our britches, so to speak, using good kind of colloquialism. I uh, saw a great portrait of this when I was in Atlanta many years ago. Uh, you may know the city that Nikki and I lived in was a planned community. has 36,000 people, same size as Fort Mill, has more golf cart paths than any other city in the world. Walmart has 200 golf cart spaces at the Walmart. The kids drive their golf carts to school, like 400 parking places at the school for golf carts. I mean, it's, the whole town is connected with golf cart paths behind the scenes, so you can go absolutely everywhere. The one thing, though, that people forget is that a golf cart is technically a motor vehicle. And so all of the laws that apply to a car apply to a golf cart on a sidewalk. And so we had one situation I I saw where a lady had um, taken her grandkid and put grandkid in said lap and let grandkid play on the car because, you know, he's a golf cart. He can't be that bad. And he knows what he's doing, right? He's five years old. He, he's got it all figured out. He understands the world. He knows how to control his life. He's good enough. He's clever. I mean, he's a smart kid. He wrecked the golf cart into another golf cart. And she lost her license for three years because she got a ticket for reckless endangerment of a minor, reckless driving, and the ticket for the accident. So you got something like 15 points in the space of one accident. And forget that it's actually a motorized vehicle. I love the ones that people like go out for a glass of wine, hop on their golf cart, go driving through the afternoon coolness of the shade, and then get busted for a DUI. It's kind of comical. Here's this little grandkid, though, who thinks that he's got the world figured out. He thinks that, you know what, I'm a good guy. I mean, it can't be that hard. Life's not that difficult. It's just a golf cart. It's not going that fast. I'm good enough to steer it, and he makes a mess of it. Terribly at his grandmother's expense. Too often we find ourselves in that similar situation filled with uh, this kind of, well, pride is really the word for it, isn't it? Thinking we can handle it. We've got it under control. And I do like to kind of poke fun at the younger generation. I guess it's a sign that I'm actually getting old. But one of the things they do very well is recognize that they can't handle it. They cope incorrectly and decide to burn their college campus and silly things like that. But they're recognizing they can't, they're not in charge of their world. It's falling apart. 
66 and following present the proper biblical response. Not to try to kind of buck up and handle it ourselves, not to be a better person, not to trust in our own abilities, not to soften the message of the gospel, not to try to kind of, well, maybe equivocate of some kind, not to be ambivalent, not to eh, turn it into this mushy kind of gray-sorted thing. 66, after this, the crowd, the disciples, turned back and no longer walked with him. He runs off at least, most likely, 10,000 people. (laughs) Because they couldn't handle the message. They couldn't handle the fact that he would be God, that he would save them, and they could not save themselves. It's interesting. I mean, the straw that breaks the camel's back is this, and this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. It's amazing. Predestination is actually so uh, divisive of a doctrine that the Lord Jesus loses 10,000 people over it. Turns and looks at the disciples, the 12. Do you want to leave too? I would love to have heard him actually ask this question. The, the, the kind of exegetical range for tone is so wide here. Was it tender? Do you want to go to? I tend to think it was probably fairly biting. Are you leaving also? Fairly sarcastic, fairly sharp. Which makes Peter's righteous response this. He illustrates beautifully the heart of the true Christian. <laughs> Where would I go? What would I do? What, do you, what, what else am I going to do at this point? I have no other hope but to go with you. You're my only chance. What do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, that's pretty clear. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Confirming, yes, you are from heaven. You are the bread from heaven. What else would we do? Where else would we go? And I love his response here because it demonstrates the heart of the Christian in a number of different ways. It demonstrates the heart of the Christian because it it understands the desperation of Christianity. Christianity is not the first choice amongst many. It's the only choice amongst many. When I was in youth ministry land, I did a lot of really dumb mistakes that you live and learn from. Thankfully, never killed anybody. One of them was my first summer in, I took the senior guys backpacking just by myself. Not my finest choice. We got about halfway into the uh, trip. There's about five of us going when um, I thought the flood was back. I thought Noah's here. Rainbow is gone. We're going to wash away. And the skies let out. And And, uh, I mean, it was so bad. One of the guys sleeping at night, he sleeps on his stomach, had a pool of water in the small of his back inside the tent, inside his sleeping. I mean, we're talking absolutely drenched. 
And the guys begin to complain. They want to leave. They're miserable. They're cold, even in the middle of summer. They're soaking wet. You know, their socks are wet. Their boots are wet. They're absolutely just miserably uncomfortable. One guy's like, well, I'm just going to hitchhike to the road and sort out from there. And I'm like, I'm walking to my car. It's 50 miles that way, but I'm still walking to my car. Now, funny enough, what do all the guys eventually decide to do? They decide to walk with me because it's the only way they're getting home. Because <laughs> I have the keys. It's the only way they have. They, they can look around and they actually feel like they have a lot of choices. We could find a, a nice shelter to stay in. We can walk to the road. We can hitchhike home. We can figure out, you're 500 miles from your house and I'm the only person with the keys to the car. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to follow me because I'm your only option. Yeah, you might be a little uncomfortable between now and then, but I'm the only hope you have to get home. You see, there's a sense of desperation. They're miserable. But it was the only chance they had. Where else will we go? But I love, too, that it's not just a desperate cling to a Savior, but there's also an informed clinging to Him. Where else will we go? Why would that matter? Because you're the only one that has eternal life. It's not some just grasping at divinity. It's grasping at this concept of Jesus, but it's this knowledge of who He is. I will cling to you because you have eternal life. He hasn't yet told them that He is eternal life, but that's going to happen shortly. Even going so far as to say, you're the holy one of God. You are from heaven. You're the, the righteous one. I'm not quite sure yet he understands that he's ascribing divinity to him here. I, I'm not entirely sure how far he's going. But I pretty much guarantee it's the best that his heart has at this time. And I like that. He develops Later on in his ministry, he's going to call him the Messiah. He's going to call him divinity. But at this point, they recognize he's from heaven. And that's the best they have. You see, the righteous heart, this is fantastic. It's this pledge of commitment to the only way to heaven. This pledge of commitment to Christ, knowing and learning who he is. This pledge to walk with him. It's a high view of Jesus. And Jesus... You would think at this point would affirm them. I mean, the parent who has the young children, who they get the right answer, and you're like, all right, good job, kiddo. No, no, he doesn't. <laughs> oh, yeah, by the way, one of you is going to betray me because not all of you are actually going to heaven. Did I not choose you the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. Didn't make a mistake. I know it. One of you, even having sat under my teaching, even having been a part of my, you know, the church of Jesus at this point, even having been with him, seen him, witnessed his miracles, even then, this one will go to hell, not knowing the Savior. What do we do with this? How do we, how do we apply a passage like this? As one is to acknowledge these two different trajectories in the heart of man. The unrighteous trajectory is a trajectory that is focused on self, that is focused on being the king of our own lives, being our own God, being our own everything. It's a, it's a trajectory of me. But 
while the other trajectory is a trajectory of Christ. His words, His work, His beauty, His power, His redemption, Him and Him alone, it's Christ. Every year, every, every year, every month when I serve this supper, that's part of my vocabulary. As we fence the table and talk about who this table is for, the beautiful thing is this is for the saints of God. But every time I try, I try to call you to examine yourself, to look at those trajectories within you. And what ways are you saying, I'm all about me? In what ways are you viewing your world, not in a heliocentric or geocentric, but a me-centric world, where I'm the center of my universe? What are the ways in which I'm the king of my life? I mean, think about that. Just, I mean, pause your money. Your time, your emotion, what you're entitled to. I mean, man alive, that that right there is probably one of the single biggest areas to examine that trajectory. What do I deserve in my life? Listen to just political conversation over the last week. Listen to the next week. I don't even know what we're going to talk about next week, but you can pretty much guarantee you listen to it. And it will be a conversation about what I'm entitled to. It's all about me. First, a conversation where King Jesus is held high. Held high as the source of delight, the King of heaven, the Prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. May it be that we as his people, saints of the Lord, cultivate this righteous and knowledgeable desperation in King Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our original sin. Forgive us for even this week as your saints still not longing for Jesus. So many of us this week have sought to have our pleasures satisfied with earthly things. Good food, good friends, good fun. And had very little concern for the very bread of life. Lord, we confess that we have tried to satisfy our hunger with things that are not lasting. And we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask that even now, the table in a few moments, that you would feed us with bread from heaven, that we may never hunger or thirst again. In Jesus' name, amen.